Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. In our second episode, I'll be speaking to Dr. Anna Lebovic, an historian and educator with a doctorate in America's preeminent fashion magazine, Vogue. We'll be delving into the history of the publication, examining how it has changed since it began as an American weekly newspaper in 1892, and why it's enjoyed such longevity in a world that's rapidly moving away from print. So, Anna, you're currently working on a book about American Vogue. So how did you become interested in the idea? Uh, Well, that's a terrific question. The the short answer is I was looking for the book that didn't exist uh, and eventually decided, well, there's one solution to that problem, right, which is just sit down and write it, (laughs) which sounds very simple um, as someone who's in the death knells of it at the moment. It's much more complex than you expect. But uh, the longer answer is during my honours thesis, I was writing on Jacqueline Kennedy and I was very interested in mapping how she, as an icon of femininity, sort of as first lady between 1961 and 1963 in the United States, how that sort of shifted over time to kind of try and foreground and anticipate the feminism that erupted a few years later. So part of that was that project was very much looking how was she covered in the New York Times, how was she covered in Washington Post, how was she covered, so on and so on. And of course, Vogue came into that picture. Um, And then when I was trying to contextualise and research all the different media publications, you know, plenty of books on the history of New York Times, plenty of books on the history of Washington Post, zip on American Vogue. I've since come to realise that's actually quite a common phenomenon uh, within United States history um, as a field. Fashion is still a bit of a blind spot. Um, So basically then and there I decided, well, that's a very obvious gap that needs to be filled, um, I guess I'm going to be the person to do it. So that was my doctoral uh, thesis project. So that was the first academic history of Vogue then? Yes, it was. I mean, well, hopefully will be once eventually it comes out as a book. So just tell us a little bit about Vogue. I mean, when when did it start? How did it begin? Vogue is one of the oldest uh, continuously operating magazines in the United States. So it's been around since 1892. Bizarrely, it actually started as a very sort of elite society publication for men and women. And it wasn't actually focused on fashion at all. Um, So it actually struggled for quite a while um, until in 1909, a very enterprising, ambitious Condé Montrose Nast uh, bought the publication um, and he decided, right, I'm going to try out, remodel it completely. And he made it into a fashion publication exclusively for women. So from that point onwards, it's always been founded originally in New York. That is the original masthead, which is one of the things people don't tend to know. They tend to think that Paris Vogue came first. Uh, It did not. It came later, much later, um, sort of in the 1910s period during the Condé Montrose Nast. They also experimented with a German Vogue, which did very badly (laughs) initially (laughs) and was shuttered uh, during World War I. Um, But the New York Vogue is the original. um, And in my very biased opinion, (laughs) as someone who spent, well, almost a decade researching it. I still think it's the best. So who was Condé Nast? He's got a great name, doesn't he? He does. <laughs> Condé Montrose Nast is his full name. Uh, basically, he was a very, very ambitious um, American, French descent, hence the 
Condé with the accent on the E. Um, but his main claim to fame really was Vogue. He purchased it in 1909 and from my understandings he kind of strapped himself in financially to do it. So Vogue was very much his baby, which is clear from the archives. He's very much an involved, if not meddling, <laughs> owner. Um, daily memos with all the you know, editors and, and so on, very close with his editor-in-chief at the time, Edna Woolman Chase. Um, and he basically, Vogue becomes sort of his baby and then he builds Condé Nast publications um, around it, which becomes incorporated in 1923 um, and goes on to, you know, pick up various other mastheads. Of course, Condé um, Nast Publications still exists as a company, which is really quite extraordinary and it's considered one of the very elite um, publishing companies in the United States. Nast died himself in 1942, sadly. Um, after his death, the Vogue, as well as um, the ownership of Condé Nast Publications passes to a well-established board of various hired people to kind of run it in and do his bidding in his absence. Um, and eventually it is bought up entirely, the whole Condé um, Nast Publications um, company by uh, Samuel Newhouse Sr. Um, the story, which I think is fantastic, is that he bought it as a an- wedding anniversary gift for his wife Mitzi for a million dollars because she loved Vogue. And he decided, or I know, Ryan, I need a new husband, um, that he would buy the whole company for her. And it has remained within that family ever since. So after uh, Samuel Newhouse's senior's death in 1975, it passes to his son. So you've had a very, which is unusual given how long Vogue has been around, very little change in ownership in that time. So a lot of continuity. There's a lot of long-time staffers sort of at the management level that have always been involved. So how much has it changed over the years? Uh, Significantly, Um, particularly even in the period that I've sort of looked at. So I've mentioned how it originally starts for men and women. Um, It also, in terms of its frequency, that's changed significantly. Initially, it's a weekly sort of society. It's more like a pamphlet or a newsletter, if you like. Um, Under uh, Condé Montrose Nast, he makes it into a fortnightly publication during the 1930s, and then eventually it becomes a monthly much, much later. Um, So you can very much see in terms of that shapes the structure of the magazine um, purely and most straightforwardly in terms of how thick it is and how much content you have. Once you get to kind of the monthlies, it's much more of a um, heavier, complete book, as they would call it in the magazine industry. Um, In terms of its content, um, it's changed significantly, as well as its readership. That's the other thing I should mention. So American Vogue now seems like this very unassailable, established, you know, institution, um, which is one of the things I'm really interested in tracing in the book, how that happens. That actually happens relatively late in the Anna Winter era, so from sort of the 90s onwards. Um, Vogue in the post-war period is quite (laughs) all over the place, which is very much what my book is about. So during the 1950s, we're talking about a readership of about 300,000, 350,000. So not very big um, and especially not very big for that period either. The post-war period, you're talking about the era of like mass you know, magazines, Um, you know, there's very little competition. You've only got sort of, you're just starting to get television. So magazines are kind of the 
vehicle for leisure and, and pleasure in terms of how a lot of information is being consumed. So that's the era of, you know, Life magazine, Reader's Digest. They have readerships of 14, 15 million. Vogue, in terms of its readership, then kind of starts a little bit of a climb, but it's fairly sedentary. And then once you sort of get into the 1960s, which is the Diana Vreeland era, she's the very famous flamboyant, over-the-top editor-in-chief who is particularly famous uh, for commissioning, you know, a million-dollar shoots. She would think nothing of just flying her whole staff to Tahiti for a fashion shoot. Um, Vogue starts to get into trouble then. Um, Its readership goes down. It's contracting. Its avenue... uh, Revenue in terms of advertising, sorry, uh, starts to contract. Um, and so Vreeland is fired at that point. And, and Vogue is kind of widely seen as in decline. Um, but then after that, you get the new editor come in, Grace Mirabella. And Vogue goes through a really interesting rocky period initially with her. She sort of has to figure out how to address feminism, which we can talk about in a bit more detail in a minute. Um, but by the late 1970s under her, she sort of has cracked the code. And for the first time, Vogue hits a readership of over a million. But it's a slow burn, um, very much a slow burn. And so very much, it's not until the winter era that you start to see it accelerate to what you kind of understand Vogue to be now. So each editor then, you'd, you'd see a real, a clear difference between the magazines they were putting out, their, Absolutely. their own tone and their own style. Absolutely. Um, and I think that's one of the keys to why Vogue has been able to survive for so long. Vogue has had fairly consistent ownership, but what the owners have always done is very much give each of the editors-in-chief who've come in a pretty free reign. Um, they sort of always understood that... They were coming in, they were usually given at least a decade. Um, so two of the editors-in-chief, so uh, Edna Woolman Chase, who was an editor-in-chief from 1914 to 1952. That's extraordinary length Chase, of time. Yeah. Um, if you think about Anna Winter more recently, she's been in since 1988. So you've got two editors who have had at least 30 years in the job. The other editors in between had at least 10. Um, and when they come in, they are very much given free reign to pursue their vision for the magazine and pretty ample budgets to do what they wanted to do. Now, of course, they had to live or die (laughs) by the results. And in in Vreeland's case, it did come back to bite her in the behind. She lost the job. Um, But so as a result of that, you do see significant changes, to answer your original question, in Vogue's content. Um, So during, I'm just thinking the 1950s, you have the era of Jessica Davis. She is the least well-known Vogue editor, deliberately so. She is reclusive. (laughs) She's very clearly not wanting to, there's no records really of her. She did not want to be written or talked about, which is really interesting, actually. But she's very much considered the sort of sophisticated conservative editor. And so Vogue under her is very much about sort of the mid-1930s classy, suited woman going out to lunch. But then you kind of get whiplash when you go from her to Diana Vreeland, who's off to Tahiti shooting on location. Um, So not in studios with Cecil Beaton, very static, staged glamour shots. Um, These are very wild, free, you know, scenic. She's shot in Japan, in temples in Japan. I mean, this is sort of in the 
mid-60s, so really revolutionary stuff. And the stuff that she's shooting is also revolutionary. You know, you've got glitter go-go boots. Um, she's also a very early proponent of the sexual revolution. So, I mean, I got a shock when I started looking. From about 1964 onwards, there's lots of breasts in vogue, <laughs> lots and lots and lots of them, um, which was very controversial at the time. So they were actually for people who were subscribing to Vogue via mail. That was a problem because they were breaking with the United States Postal Code um, in terms of what was appropriate, not pornography. Um, so very clear shifts. And then you kind of get the shift back again the other way when after Vreeland's gone and then you go to Grace Mirabella as the editor-in-chief, she's sort of known as the quote-unquote working woman Vogue um, editor. So she was a self-professed career woman. She married very late, never had children. She believed that she'd been brought in to address feminism, which Vogue had not done under Vreeland, um, and the owners felt had been a problem. And so under her, you get sort of very sophisticated, classy workwear, the whole idea of dress for success. So you start off with a lot of very sophisticated, uh, but very easy to wear, unlike the 1950s suits of heavily corseted, very restrictive under Davis, sort of very Dior-esque. Um, they're much easier to wear. So it's sort of Ralph Lauren. It's a lot of American sportswear, but high-end American sportswear, Bill Blass, um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, to a certain degree, moving through the magazine <laughs> from decade to decade, it, you can see it shift sometimes slowly over time, but sometimes when you get certain editors come in, it's a really, it's almost like a different magazine from everything from the content to the layout to the font to the, the all-important covers. So how much impact has it had on fashion? That is an incredibly difficult question to answer and one that I'm really kind of trying to grapple with in my book. I mean, I think Vogue, like all forms of media, uh, has to do two things, and it's a very tricky dance. On the one hand, it has to respond to what's going on out in the broader culture, right? So things like feminism or um, sexual revolution, right? It does have to address that to a certain degree. But on the other hand, for a magazine like Vogue to really have any kind of clout or authority, it also has to lead, right? It has to um, make certain decisions to put certain things out into the zeitgeist, to not wait to just receive it and recycle it. It has to make certain decisions. In terms of American Vogue's influence on fashion, I think it has been very significant. I think I would argue, and I certainly am trying to in the book, that I think Vogue's real influence um, has been on much more than fashion, though. It's also been on culture more generally. Um, things like, you know, the sexual revolution, things like breaking down the barriers around nudity, right, um, which in the mid-60s is something that you expected to see in somewhere like Playboy. Vogue going ahead and doing that really broke down that door for a so-called classy mainstream publication. But, you know, Vogue in terms of fashion has also broken some of the really big stories, found some of the really big designers. You know, it's where Ralph Lauren was heavily profiled and featured by Grace Mirabella. Again, that's where the editors come in. If they really like and cultivate a designer, and that happens in New York, it's a small world, you know, especially in the 1950s. There are these fantastic stories about the garment district being right across the road from the then Vogue offices and the racks literally being of clothes, being wheeled back and forth on the street. Um, so when a, 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 an editor would take a shine 
to a particular designer. Um, that could really make their name then as it does now. Anna Winter has, you know, Jason Wu, a lot of the really big, more recent underground designers, um, Alexander Wang, you know, were initially cultivated by um, and, you know, really promoted and backed um, financially, but just in terms of coverage, exposure by these editors. So I think Vogue's influence on both fronts um, can't be underestimated on fashion, but on culture more generally as well. So Anna Winter, she's sort of a fairly formidable character, isn't Terrifying, she? Terrifying, I, I yes. would imagine. <laughs> So she's obviously got incredible clout and she took on the running of the Met Ball. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, no, absolutely. So Anna Winter, uh, also nicknamed the Nuclear Winter for her frosty demeanour, was <laughs> was brought in from the UK, her, her place of birth, uh, in 1988 to run American Vogue, a job that she had been eyeing for a good decade. Um and she did so well with the magazine that after seven years, eventually the Met Ball was given effectively to her to run as the chairwoman in 1995. So the Met Gala has been around since the 1940s. Um, it was first, first run in 1948 basically to help fund the Costume Institute, um, which houses historic garments of, um, you know, garments of historic value and, and significance within the Metropolitan Museum of Art, but it needed to be self-funded. So there's always been a tradition of having some kind of dinner or annual ball to basically raise revenue. Um, Anna Winter, however, when she inherits this event, annual event, uh, in 1995, takes it to completely new stratospheric levels. And I don't think that's accidental. She understands that if she can make this event, because it's now officially under the Vogue umbrella, it kind of pushes the Vogue brand into a new space. So what she does is is very smart, in my opinion, with the Met Gala. She does two things. The first is that she makes it even more exclusive to get into. Um, so tickets go up significantly. Um, and even if you have the money, you know, to spare $100,000 for a table for three hours, um, you still can't get a table unless she herself officially um, allows you on the guest list. So very exclusive. Um, and on top of that, she also starts um, inviting free of charge international celebrities from all walks of life. So rather than previous, as had previously been the case, so people who are very big within the fashion industry um, and or sort of celebrities, actors and musicians, she starts mainly based in the United States. She expands the guest list way beyond that and starts, you know, inviting business people. Elon Musk flies in on his jet, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump reportedly proposed to Melania at the Met Gala, you know, a good decade ago, um, as well as sports people. So you get a real eclectic mix. And it's become, as a result, every year, this bigger and bigger thing, which on the one hand is great because it raises money for the museum, but on the other hand, it also really bolsters the Vogue brand and it makes it much more of a three-dimensional kind of experience, right? It's no longer just a magazine on a masthead, which as we know in the current publishing market, right, that's just not enough anymore. This is kind of a, a night where you get to sort of see, feel, touch the Vogue magic, if you like, manifest on the red carpet. So is that part of the longevity then? Because as you say, print's declining, it's a very yeah. difficult market, and yet here it is after all these years. Yeah, I mean, I think that is part of it. I think Anna Winter has done, to be honest, I don't think 
Vogue leaned in as early as it should have, um, or it certainly could have, to the digital space online. It was very slow to get a kind of website that was of any kind of complexity or depth that complemented the magazine. It was very slow in that department. But in terms of the Met Gala, I think it's been incredibly savvy PR move. Um, but in terms of Vogue's longevity, I think it also goes back to this continuity in ownership, but also in editorships. You know, Anna Winter has been in that job for over 30 years, um, which is an extraordinary period of time. She knows how every single thing in that magazine office works. She knows the management intimately. So, you know, those those kinds of that inbuilt knowledge um, is significant and I, I think has also helped her steer the ship at times quite quickly when she's needed to because she's not new in the job. So what do you think the future is for Vogue? It's a good question. It's a tricky question. Um, I do think that Vogue Online, which has, you know, really come on in the last couple of years, I think that will accelerate further. They've started doing fantastic little YouTube clips, I've noticed, where they get certain celebrities on and they ask them 40 questions. I mean, and they're beautifully... That's one of the things Vogue's known for, right? Like, it's always beautifully presented and photographed. And these are really beautiful from a cinematography point of view. They're beautifully put together. Um, and sort of intimate portraits of people like Nicole Kidman or, you know, other celebrities of that kind of ilk. I think we might see more of that kind of content um, to kind of augment the magazine. I think you might see those two interface a little more closely at the moment. They're sort of fairly separate. It's sort of two tracks going on, the online and the magazine, and the two still stand alone. I think we might start to see those converge a bit more. So when can we expect to see your book? Soon, <laughs> is the nice answer. I'm hoping in, it, that's my news resolution, uh, get it done before the new year, 2020. Is Fantastic. My we look forward to it. Oh, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.